Blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. This is Brother James from True Church, False Church. And I want to share a message that I believe is so essential in our day. I believe that um, the landscape of Christianity in the West, that is from England uh, into uh, all of Great Britain area and Canada and United States, I believe that we are seeing, we're witnessing a severe uh, apostate situation in almost all of the evangelical churches, especially in America. You know, it's been said that in Great Britain for quite some time, this is nothing new, but for quite some time that uh, churches are shutting down and, and Muslims are, are buying them and turning them into mosques or they're just staying empty. Um, but that's not the, the apostasy or the falling away that I want to discuss. The, the, the apostasy that I want to discuss, I believe, is the result or the purpose why there are so many buildings um, where people used to meet in the name of the Lord and now being abandoned or even being purchased by Muslims or being left empty. Um, that's, that's true of the United States as well. There's so many pastors that are quitting. They're leaving their, their pastorate. They're forsaking their jobs as pastors um, or they just don't have the finances to keep their, their churches going. Um, and I believe all that is a direct result from the uh the failure of many to experience for themselves uh being saved or what we i would call the true new testament christian faith um that being leaders having experienced that or have abandoned that or have uh forsaken it for for other things and therefore because they don't have it they cannot produce in those people that are coming to them, they cannot produce the true Christian faith. They cannot set it before them, nor can they call them to it. I believe that we are seeing a false um, standard in the church in the West. And what I mean by that is that you ask someone, what is a Christian? And I can tell you that I did that. I've done that for many years. I've asked people, what is a Christian? What constitutes a Christian? What is the Christian faith? And I would get a variety of answers. A Christian is someone who prays, they fast, they give, they go to a church building, they read their Bibles, they study their Bibles. A Christian loves Jesus. All these different answers, but that is not what constitutes a Christian. And that also reveals the test by which they're using to determine if someone is a Christian. But we must, we must turn to the scriptures and see what the litmus test the scriptures give us by which we can first examine our own lives and then we can use to help others to be able to examine their own life. I have labored with a lot of people over the past 12 years and some, most, I would say most, have come out of an institutional traditional church and they already believed they were believers. And then when we just start reading the word and just getting into the word, just reading the word, not trying to put commentaries on it, not doing anything, that, just reading the word, plain and simple, people's jaws would just drop. And I remember to this very day, my wife and I just, you know, we always are stunned that people are so shocked by the message of the word 
But the reason why they're they're stunned is because they don't hear the truths of the scriptures being taught. One, two, they're hearing these truths, possibly some of these truths being explained away. Um, three, they're told that they're saved by grace through faith and not of works, and therefore uh, nothing else matters because Jesus paid it all and all you have to do is believe and you're saved and you're fine um, there's nothing you can do to be found worthy of God because Jesus made you worthy of God and all these different cliches and all these different semi-biblical answers what I mean by that is yeah you can find what they're saying in the scriptures but you can't find what they're saying to be backed by the totality of scripture big difference and the direct result of that is I believe that in at best case scenarios, you have born again believers that truly are on fire for the Lord and know their word and they're under good shepherds. But that is um, far and few and in between in Great Britain, Canada and the United States. It's a very scarce um, reality or it's something that you cannot find to be in every city throughout the United States. But on the other side of that, you have this um, horrible, false interpretation of Romans 7 by which people are using to justify their habitual, continual sin and rebellion to God. But I also would say that just taking them for what they say when they're using Romans 7 to justify their continual sinning or cussing, fornicating, getting drunk or their addictions to things, lying. And using Romans 7, they're exposing something not only about themselves, but very well under about the men in which they set themselves under. And I want to do a few things with this study. I first want to give and set before us the biblical litmus test for what constitutes a Christian. It's the first thing I want to do. And it is everywhere in the scripture. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's in the scripture in the New Testament. And I just want to set that before each and every single one of you. And I want you to take this message very serious. Because your eternal life depends upon it. Or should I say your future in eternity depends upon your current position and ultimately your position when you die. I believe that what I'm about to present to you is not just biblical, but it is the apostolic message and litmus test that the apostles used. And I can't tell you how grieved I am with the current situation of Christianity or churchianity or a term that I coined a long time ago, mananity. This is what we see is not Christ's church. It's not Christ's Christianity. It's man's church. It's man's Christianity. And it's false. And it produces false converts. 
And we have to come to a place where we are willing to let God be true and every man a liar, including yourself. Including yourself. And I also want to challenge you to write down every cliche that you've heard or that you use, write it down and then go and study it in the light of the totality of scripture in context, study those cliches. You know, one cliche, and I did this, I did this 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And, you know, one of the cliches that we would use would was um, too blessed to be stressed. And, you know, blessed, brother, how you doing? Blessed. And everyone was blessed. And if someone got a new car, a new house, they were blessed. But then when I start to go and search the New Testament scriptures, I saw that Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my namesake. And I started to realize that many of the cliches that not only I, but those that I, I gathered with in this false institution, this false church, we were addicted not to the words of Jesus, but to the cliches of men. And I had to realize that I was very unsound in my understanding of God's word. I was ignorant of God's word. And the vast majority of the people that I was fellowshipping with were just as ignorant, if not worse. And something far worse than that, our leaders are just as ignorant of biblical truth. And many of them were falling into sexual sin. And that is something that is very common amongst the church in the West. You have leaders throughout, mentioned and unmentioned, that are falling into sexual sin, that are hooked on porn, that are hooked on drugs, that are hooked on alcohol. And if it's not the senior leader it's his staff, and if the senior leader cannot make disciples of Je for Jesus of his staff, then how can he make disciples of those that are sitting in the pews that he only sees maybe two, three hours in a week? When he can't make disciples of the men and women that he sees for 40 hours of the week. We need to quit putting our faith and our trust in these false teachers and these false institutions. And we need to come back to biblical Christianity. And we need to come back to the sound truth of God's word. And we need to start walking in truth. And that's what I want to do today with you through this message. Is I want to present the biblical Christian faith. The faith, the faith that Jesus gave to his apostles and the faith that the apostles preached and that we read about in our New Testament. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5, we read, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? When's the last time you've been challenged to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith? When have you been challenged to prove your own self that you're in the faith? When? 
I'm challenging you in love and with the scriptures to examine yourself. You can examine yourself once you're dead. That is the time where Christ will examine you with your, with your life, your whole life, if your whole Christian life exposed right there. And you will be examined. And many of you will be found to be counterfeits. And there will be nothing you can do about it. But to suffer eternal judgment in the lake of fire. But if you take the time to truly and thoroughly examine yourself right now while you are living, there's something you can do about it. So the first thing Paul says is examine yourself. The second thing I want to point out is whether you be in the faith. Examine yourself if you are in the faith. And then he says, prove your own self. But then he gives us the litmus test to prove or to know or how we are to examine ourselves. And that is how that Jesus Christ is in you. That, beloved, that is the Christian faith. Jesus Christ in you, that is the Christian faith. That is what constitutes you for being a Christian. Christ in you. It is Christ in you that constitutes you to be a Christian. It is Christ in you. And I just want to call to your remembrance that God has always desired to dwell with his people. God is an intimate God. He's intimate with his creation, especially his creation that he created in his own image, mankind. We read in the book of Genesis that in the cool of the day, God went to go and dwell in the garden and Adam and Eve, they heard his voice. They heard him walking in the garden. They heard God. They knew God's distinct sound. So the fact that they heard his sound and because they had already sinned, they hid themselves. They knew the distinct sound of God. I would say that tells us that they were used to having fellowship with God. They knew it was his sound. And they hid themselves. And then when God has Moses and the Israelites, after he calls them out of Egypt, he has them build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle foreshadows, and even the temple of Solomon, the tabernacle foreshadows God dwelling inside of us. The Bible says that we're spirit, soul, and body. Paul the Apostle says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That we're spirit, soul, and body. We have a spirit and we have a soul and we're housed. Our spirit and our soul are housed in a body. And the outer court of the tabernacle, the outer court of the tabernacle is a picture of our human body. The inner court is a picture of our soul. And the holies of holies is a picture of our spirit where God comes and dwells within. And when they built this tabernacle, the outer, the, the whole framework on the outside was built with covered in badger skin. It's a picture of our flesh. 
But nonetheless, man anointed by God uh, came and, and, and they brought gifts and, and, and anointed men of God. They, they fashioned different tools and they made different things for this tabernacle. They built this tabernacle, but man's hands were all over it. The print, the fingerprints of man were all over this tabernacle. And before God would come and dwell in it, there was a sacrifice and there was shed blood. And then God came to dwell in it. There was blood that was sprinkled upon the, um, uh, the mercy seat in the holies of holies. It was sprinkled seven times. I believe that's, so, that, that's a picture of Jesus' blood flowing through seven different areas of his body where he was wounded for our transgressions. And that temple, that the holies of holies, the tabernacle was cleansed. So that God could come and dwell inside of it. Because God says clearly that he wants to dwell amongst his people. And before God can come and dwell in us, before Christ can come and be in us, our spirit, our soul has to be cleansed from all of our sins. And Jesus, our sin sacrifice, cleanses us washes us purges us from all of our sin and then he comes and he tabernacles within us the bible says that we become the building of god we become the building of god we become the temple of the holy ghost this is the christian faith beloved christ in you the hope of glory, becoming the building of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God, living and dwelling and moving and having His being in us. And just like when they finished building that tabernacle, it wasn't holy until the presence of God came down into it. And it became a holy tabernacle. And it was holy because God was there. And if Christ is in you, then you are holy, not because of what you do, but because Christ is there. The Holy One is living and abiding in you. And the evidence, the evidence that Christ is in you is you do holy works. But we don't do holy works to get Christ in us. No, beloved, we repent of all of our wickedness and we turn from our sin and we turn from our rebellion to God and we turn from the world and we turn from satanic de uh, uh, um, uh, deception and we turn to God to be cleansed and to be filled with God. And then we become holy, even as he is holy, even as he is holy. But because so many false teachers are in the land, men and women who haven't been, who have not Christ living in them, many of these men have, are guilty of bringing people under a letter, or should we say a new law, that we call the new covenant 
and that would be to many, that would be the writings from Matthew to Revelations. And they bring him under this new covenant and they treat this new covenant as a new letter, a new way of living. But I want to present to you that the new covenant isn't a letter, but is about the spirit of the living God living and dwelling in us. So on one hand, I can see why some people are stuck in Romans 7, not just using it as a justification for their sin, but because they're under the letter of the new covenant. They're under the new covenant has a letter, not realizing that the new covenant isn't a letter. Though we label the New Testament, we call that the New Testament or the New Covenant, but we have missed what the New Covenant is. Not just missed it, but we haven't experienced it. And that is what God is after. God is after us experiencing Christ Jesus coming and living in us by His Spirit. Because every letter, every letter kills. It is only the Spirit that gives life and righteousness. And God is after life and righteousness for us. God is after life and righteousness for us. But the life He's after is not the life that we've been living apart from Him. It's not for us to continue in the same way of living in sin and rebellion for self. But it's a new life. It's a new of a different kind of a life that comes through the very life of Jesus Christ living and dwelling in us that makes it a new of a different kind of a covenant. That's probably the, the best way to interpret the new covenant with all the Greek parsings, it's new of a different kind of a covenant. It's nothing of the old. It's nothing of the old. So you can't bring a letter, even though the writings of the New Testament are, are, are the fulfillment. They fulfill the old. But it's not given. It, the New Testament, the New Testament writings were never given to us has a means or has a way by which we would be constituted Christians if we lived, if we kept, if we obeyed. No. It's Christ in you. And when Christ comes and lives in you, you are made holy. You are made righteous. Because God is after righteousness and He's after life. And that life is eternal life. Not a temporal life that is fading away. Wasted on, on, on drunkenness and drugs and fornication and adultery and addictions to porns and so many other addictions. It's a life of freedom. Freed from sin. Dead to sin. Alive unto God. Freed from Satan. Freed from the flesh. Freed from the world. Servants of God. By the life of His Spirit living in us. The new covenant is not of a letter, but of the Spirit. 
Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter three, and we'll start in verse one. Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tab tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, that's speaking of the letter, written and engraven on stones, that's speaking of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, that God himself engraved on stones, that's what Paul's talking about, that's the context here, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. It was a glorious thing. Was. Past tense. It was. Verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So if the old covenant, the, the writings of, of, of the commandments of God on the tables of stone were glorious and such an amazing work of God and, and the very face of Moses shone and, and they couldn't look at him, they had to cover him. If that was to be done away with, it was to be done away with so that we can receive the full intention of what God wanted us and it wasn't a new letter, it was the very spirit of the living God which is far more glorious even than letters written by the finger of God. Think about this. Would you prefer a tablet, a, a, a rock tablet with the very letters or words imprinted on that rock by the very finger of God, would you prefer that over the very spirit of the living God living and dwelling and moving and having his being in you? Which would you prefer? Well, I can tell you which God preferred and what Jesus preferred, and that was not a letter, but his very spirit. But his very spirit. Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory so if the letter that brought condemnation had glory how much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory it is the righteous spirit of the living god who is living in us that is now bringing and producing righteousness in us that is more glorious than the letter that brought condemnation and death Verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. So he's clearly comparing the two and saying the first one, the letter, didn't have this type of glory by reason of the glory that excelleth. 
For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But the, but their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, even Moses, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty from what? Well, the Bible says in Romans 6 that we have, we're freed from sin. The Bible says in Romans 7, we're free from the law. The Bible says in Romans 8, we're free from our flesh. The Bible says in, in Galatians chapter 1 that we're freed from the world. Um, the Bible says in, 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 in 1 Peter 2.24 that we are healed from sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 that we're uh, delivered from sin and we have the seed of God in us. That's the kind of liberty that we have. And we don't, we're, we're not called to produce this because that's what the letter of the old covenant was calling everyone to produce. But all it did was condemn them. All it did was condemn them because the letter cannot produce righteousness. That is the work for the Spirit of God. That is the work for the Spirit of God. The letter has its purpose. The letter, we're told by Paul in Galatians, that the letter, the law, is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's to show us how utterly sinful we are and how bad we need Christ in us. This is the new covenant. The almighty God living and dwelling in us. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 3 1 Corinthians chapter 3 We're just going to look at a couple of verses in this 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9 1 Corinthians 3:9 reads For we are laborers together with God ye are God's husbandry ye are God's building we're God's building. We're God's building, beloved. That's why when Jesus on the cross gave up the ghost, the curtain in the temple that separated the very life of God, the very presence of God that dwelt in the holies of holies, that curtain separated God's presence from his people. And it was torn from top to bottom. And God from that day forward has stopped dwelling in buildings and we have become his building. And this is one of the horrors of our day is that we rather go to a building instead of be the building of God. We rather go to a place and call this the building of God, the, the church of God, the tabernacle of God, the temple of God. But God says, no, you're my building. 
The veil has been torn, brothers and sisters. The veil has been torn. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus. And we are all called to be priests and prophets and kings and ministers of God. We're all called to serve God. And if you have Christ in you, then you have the greatest commentator to the scriptures that you'll ever be able to find. And it doesn't come at a price in the sense of having to buy all these books to know what the Bible says. No, you have, you have the author of the word of God living and dwelling in you. And he wants to be your teacher. He wants to be your teacher. Verse 11, continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as so as by fire... Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. He's speaking to the whole church of Corinth. It's plural. And he's telling them that they're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in them individually and corporately. Verse 17, and if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. See, beloved, under the old covenant, you sinned against God by breaking his word. As born again believers, as Christians, we sin against God in his very own house. We sin against God in his very own building. We are his building. We are his temple. And when we sin against God, it's a whole different level of rebellion because it's not just the transgressing of God's law, but it's literally sinning against God in his own house. The Bible says that you are not your own for you've been purchased with the price. We are the building of God. And as Christians, when we sin against God, especially fornication, because the Bible says that's the only sin by which you go and you become one with another person. And he, Paul says, would you dare take the body of Jesus, the very temple, the very building of God and go join it to a harlot? Sinning under the New Testament is a very, very horrific thing. It's a very serious thing. It was serious under the Old Covenant. We're told in, in, in the Old Covenant that if somebody was to sin and they would witness it, cussing, um, just rebelling against God, 
and there was two or more witnesses, they witnessed it, they would be stoned without mercy. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says, how much more severe is the punishment now under the new covenant when somebody, when somebody turns from God, turns from the conviction of the Spirit of God in them, pleading with them not to go on and commit sin. But they trample the Son of God underfoot. They treat the blood of the new covenant as if it's a common thing. And they do despite to the Spirit of grace. It is a horrible thing to do. Because we don't have to. We don't have to go and sin. We have the very power of God living in us, working in us, giving us the wisdom not to be deceived. But when we willfully turn away from God's conviction, we turn away from the work of the Spirit, and we no longer see the covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ as a precious thing that purchased us. And we no longer want God to own our bodies. We no longer believe that that we are not our own, but we say, no, I am my own. And I'll do it my way. That is horrific rebellion against God. And if you are in that state, you need to repent. You need to repent in old school sackcloth and ashes. You need to be convicted and you need to come under by the work of the Spirit godly sorrow, which leads to true repentance, which leads to true salvation. And forgiveness of sins is only one aspect of salvation. Go read Colossians chapter 1. It's one aspect. There's being translated from darkness to light. There's being redeemed. There's being forgiven, yes. But God isn't going to forgive us and leave us in the kingdom of Satan. He delivers us. God is a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He translates us. He washes us. He forgives us. But he comes and fills us and lives and dwells in us and says, I purchased you. You're not your own. You're mine. You're my building. You're my temple. And because God is here living and dwelling in us, we are holy because he makes us holy. Because he makes us holy, beloved. We don't do holy acts so that we can be accepted of God or so that we can be holy. No, we are holy because Christ, the Holy One, is living and dwelling in us. He's enabling us, strengthening us, so that we can continue to live out that holiness. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. Actually, we'll back up and we'll we'll start in verse 25. Verse 25 of Colossians chapter 1 says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which 
hath been hid from ages and from generations. Notice that word hath is the past tense. So the mystery, what, there was a mystery in the past, but now is made manifest to his saints. So we're going to find out what that mystery is. Verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we see here that the mystery, which had been hid from ages, but is now revealed, is Christ in you, is that God would come and live not only in the Jew, but in the Gentile. The nations, other than the Jewish nation, all nations would now be accepted of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now Christ, God, can come and live in us. That was the mystery. And we see, and we, if you go back to uh, Acts chapter 10, you'll see how Peter had to have a paradigm shift. God had to come and reveal to him that he cleansed all other nations. And that they, like the Jews, had to repent and commit their lives to Jesus Christ. And I believe that Christ coming into our lives, I believe that this is what Jesus meant when he said that we must be born again. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We'll start in verse 3. So we know that Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes to talk to Jesus. And in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. We have to be born again. Verse four, Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be born of water and born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it list, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it come or where it go. <clears throat> so is every one that is born of the spirit. So what does it mean to be born again? To be born again means to be born of the Spirit. And you can go read Titus 3.5. Being regenerated, being born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is how we get Christ or how God gets Christ in us. In the Gospel of John, Chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus said this, Abide in me, and I in you. So Jesus can now abide in us. This is the Christian faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Don't lose that. This is the Christian faith. We have the ability to abide in Jesus, and he will abide in us. So that verse, John 15, 4, 
comes with a command and a promise. The command for us to abide in Him and the promise that if we abide in Him, He will abide in us. That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. This is the new covenant. When you take the order of things for Christianity after Jesus' ascension, Jesus didn't ascend and then send us a Bible translation. Jesus didn't ascend and then give us a compilation of writings. No, he did something far greater than that. Jesus ascended and he sent his spirit. So we could be born from above or born of the spirit so Christ could get in us. That's how Christ is able to live in each and every single one of us. He does it by his spirit. Let me just throw in a parenthetical right now because I know some of you are probably saying, what are you saying about the Bible? Listen, I love the word of God. I've been born again, born from above, full of the spirit of God for 19, I'm sorry, 18 years And I have read my Bible every single day since. And there have been times in my life where the Bible was just dry and I wouldn't, it didn't appear like God was speaking to me through his word and it was just dry. And I would go away and fast for a weekend. Or if I couldn't get away and fast for a whole weekend, I would pray for days, um, two, three days, four days, just praying that God renew my love and my passion for his word. And he would. And he does. But what I'm saying is that there's not a writing by which we can we can say we're living up to that. And therefore that constitutes me to be a Christian or that how I produce righteousness is by obeying, though the Bible's clear that we need to obey God. But it's by the life of God working in us that now produces the righteousness that God desires. God is a righteous, holy, pure, and perfect God. God is after righteousness. And I dare to say that God loves righteousness and holiness, His righteousness, His holiness, more than He loves His own creation, that is mankind. And He proved it by the flood. He wasn't going to tolerate their wickedness no more. So He killed all that were living with the exception of Noah and Noah's wife and his sons and their wives. And God loves his righteousness, his holiness, and his purity more than he would, was willing to not let his son be sacrificed for sins, to be a sin sacrifice. He allowed his son to be a sin sacrifice. That's how much God loves holiness and righteousness and purity. But he loves to see it in us, the creation that was created in his image and after his likeness. But a letter doesn't produce that. Only the Spirit can. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And listen, I would highly encourage you, if any of you are stuck in Romans 7, has an, uh, uh, an excuse for sinful living, I would highly encourage you to read Romans 6, 7, and 8 all together because it's one letter that never had chapter breaks or verse breakup. And you cannot roll, uh, you cannot stop Verse chapter 7 at verse 25, you have to roll it into chapter 8 because they're one. They're one. The literary format of it, they're connected. They're one. And we also have to understand that Romans 7, Paul is using um, something in the Greek language, which is historical uh, present tense, where he speaks about something in the past, but he speaks about it in a present tense 
uh, way. We do this all the time when we're telling a story about hiking or hunting or playing a sport or something that happened that we saw. We speak about it as if it's happening right now. And then this happened or, you know, um, we speak about situations as if it's in the present tense, but it's actually something that already passed. But when you read Romans 6, Paul says uh, three times we're freed from sin, including himself. And then three times in Romans 6, he says we're dead to sin. And then in Romans 8, we get this glorious picture of a believer living by the Spirit. So how can Romans 7 be the normal Christian life? And I would, I would say that it has become normal for many, but it's not the normal Christian life. And you end chapter 7 with verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So the, the, the man in Romans 7 is a body of death. It's a wretched state. And he even says that, O wretched man that I am. I'm sorry, but the Christian life isn't one of wretchedness and one of deadness. It's one of life. New life. Life that comes from the Spirit of the living God. Verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So if you are still living in the flesh, then you will be a Roman 7 guy or person in sin. But that's someone who's in the flesh, beloved. Romans 6 says, I reckon myself dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then here in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For there's no, so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and who are walking after the Spirit, no longer after the flesh. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, that is the written law, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, that is our flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. For what reason? Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That, beloved, is the normal Christian life. Walking after the spirit and the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us, not by us, but by the very spirit of the living God in us. Look at verse 9. Well, let's just keep reading because um, this really, if you continue to read, like I said, if you use Romans 6 and Romans 8 as your commentary to rightly interpret Romans 7, you'll never get, well, Paul said, even Paul said, you know, Paul couldn't stop sinning. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. The angel revealed to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21, Speaking of Jesus, saying, And his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. My Jesus is a Savior from sin, not a Savior to continue in sin. He saves us from sin to righteousness. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. 
So if we're born of the Spirit, we now have the ability to mind or seek and follow after the things of the Spirit. We have the ability by the Spirit to no longer follow after the things of the flesh. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. God is after life, beloved. He's after life and righteousness. And we see in verse 2 that the law of the Spirit, what's the law of the Spirit? Life in Christ Jesus. There's the law of sin, which leads to the law of death. There's the law of God, which reveals sin working in us, which brings death. So we have three laws. The law, the written law, which reveals sin working in us and brings death. That's the, the law of death. But then we have another law. It's called the law of the Spirit. What's the law of the Spirit? Life in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus. This is the new covenant. It's the Spirit, and it's the new law, which frees us from the law of sin and death. And it frees us from the flesh. Verse 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The man in Romans 7 is trying to follow the law, but he's doing it by the strength and the power of the flesh. And he was not pleasing God. And if you're trying to do the same thing, you won't please God. But if you forsake your sin, you repent and you turn to Jesus, you'll be washed and cleansed and he'll come and live and dwell and tabernacle within you by his spirit. And you'll be under a new law, the law of the spirit, which will automatically by default fulfill the righteousness of the law in you. Verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. You see that? What's the, what's the, uh, uh, the litmus test for the faith? Christ in you. What's the hope of glory? Christ in you. How is Christ in us? By his spirit, the spirit of God dwelling in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Notice how the spirit, of, the spirit is called the Spirit of God and also called the Spirit of Christ. It's the same Spirit. The third person of the Godhead coming and living and dwelling in us, not only freeing us from the penalty of sin, but freeing us from the power of sin cleansing us, purging us, washing us, making us new and enabling us with his very power to live righteous, holy, and pure lives, to think righteous and holy and pure. This is the work of God. This is what Ephesians 2, when it says you're saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man boast. This is what Ephesians 2 is talking about. If you don't just read that portion, verses 8, 9, and 10. Go and read Ephesians chapter 2 in its context, starting in verse 1 all the way through, and you'll see that the salvation that is mentioned that we're saved by in verse 5 and then in verse 8 is freed from a way of living, of rebellion, walking in disobedience. Verse 10, And if Christ be in you 
Do you see that? Do you see how the spirit of God dwells in you? Verse nine. And then in verse 10, he says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again of fear, but we, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Beloved, this is the Christian faith that I presented to you. This is the glorious, mysterious gospel of God, Christ in you. And I pray that you take this message and you examine yourself to see if you're in the Christian faith. Godspeed.